Let me invite you to take your Bibles, please, and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Wonderful reminder to us of the importance of Christ's cross and what, what he accomplished there on our behalf. About 10 years ago, the Presbyterian Church USA decided to drop the song In Christ Alone from their hymnal. And the point of debate was the line in the song uh, that says, on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Apparently they had picked up a version of the song that actually had changed that line and didn't realize that the change wasn't authorized. And so it became a debate between the hymn writers and the publication and the hymn writers wouldn't allow them to change the song. They wanted to change it from, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied to the love of God was magnified. They wanted to, which is true, right? God's love was magnified. But what they wanted to remove was any concept of God's wrath and the cross satisfying that wrath. They found that objectionable in terms of the view uh, of God and of their sin. And certainly uh, at the time, uh, it still is the case, but at that time there was a lot of debate happening about the concept of Christ's death being the satisfaction of a penalty against sin and wanting to reframe the understanding of Christ's death away from a penalty to just simply a, dis, a display of love. It was a movement of God about how much he cared for us and trying to set aside what we had done to offend his holiness and the consequence of that that brings judgment. So pull that out of the hymn to make it less offensive to those who don't like the concept of God's wrath or the significance of the cross as a penalty for sin. In some ways, it was the modern equivalent of what was happening at Corinth. There were folks there who wanted to downplay the offensiveness of the cross, to find a way of presenting and packaging the good news that didn't go so strongly against the sensibilities of both Jews and Greeks. We want something that is not a stumbling block to the Jewish people and something that's not viewed as moronic or foolish to the Greeks. And Paul has been confronting that saying, but what you're actually doing is catering to the pride of humanity and robbing yourself of the power of God. Because the gospel in the cross is actually the power of God and the wisdom of God. If you replace it, you've turned away from that to the foolishness of man and ultimately the weakness of man, though described as wisdom and described as power. Because the the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's where Paul finished last week as we looked at, well, he finished it a long time. That's where we finished last week at looking what Paul was saying. Pick it up now, please, in verse 26 of chapter 1. 126. 
For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you've been around for a while, you know I'm inclined to do something like this is because I think good uh, good preaching helps you read your Bible better. So uh, bear with me here a moment. Notice the beginning of verse 26. If you sort of trace it through looking for a period, you won't come to it until the end of 29 if you have uh, the right translation, I suppose. New American Standard. Some of you have some of those newer ones that like to break it down into smaller chunks because of our short attention span. Uh, But grammatically, there's a single sentence that runs from verse 26 through to verse 29. And then verses uh, verses 30 and 31 are another sentence. The reason I draw that out is because I want you to see how both sentences end because that's really the point of what he's doing. The end of the first sentence is in verse 29, so that no one may boast before God. And then the end of the second sentence is in verse 31, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. All right, so both of those verses, both of those sentences end with a statement about boasting. The first one ends with a statement about why no one should boast before the Lord. The second one ends with a statement about why if we boast, we should boast only in the Lord. So uh, in a very simple way, obviously it's about boasting. On one hand, it's why no one can boast before God and why we must boast only in the Lord. And I just want us to look at how Paul answers both of those questions because they're really crucial to understanding the tension at Corinth and the tension that uh, pops its head up regularly, like in 2013 about that hymn or in 2023 about a host of other things that people might say, well, let's sort of take that embarrassing part of Christianity and put it back. Because if we're really going to be successful in reaching our culture, we need to take those kinds of things and play them down, tuck them away, keep them as sort of like insider secrets until after we get them in, then we can share those things. And Paul says, no, this is the message that's front and center because it's actually God's purposes in it to eliminate any basis for boasting in us and to establish the foundation for only boasting in God. And that's what these verses really are about. So look at verse 26, because he starts with, um, you know, could potentially be viewed somewhat aggressive on Paul's part. And he reminds them of the social composition of the church at Corinth. For consider your calling, brethren, probably 
The idea is really consider the circumstances of your calling or when you were called, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Uh, I've already alluded to the fact that there's clearly a group at Corinth that's arrogant against Paul. Uh, there's actually a group that's just arrogant, period, right? In chapter four, he says, I know there's those of you who are arrogant, we're gonna come and I'm gonna confront you. But then he also says another point, you know, if you've received everything you have, why do you boast as if you did not? And in chapter eight, he says, don't you know that knowledge puffs up? Right, so, so there's, there's actually a, a, a thread of pride in them that is also influencing the way they're thinking about how they would relate to the world around them in trying to reach the world. And so they want a message that seems sophisticated, that seems eloquent and rhetorically powerful and has the approval of the, the sort of upper echelon of their culture. And the first thing Paul does is goes, you guys realize you're not from there, right? You're trying to construct a ministry philosophy aimed at the people who, who are the elite. And that's not actually where you've come from and where God's saved you from. I mean, look at, he says in verse 26, not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. Probably capturing in those uh, elements of what was at stake. Uh, wisdom in the culture in which Corinth existed was a way for public esteem. I mean, even our day, and I don't think this is always inherent because if it's not about spiritual things, right? Uh, we look up to people who are knowledgeable, who are wise. Uh, and and here's, here's the issue is like, you know, this is the, the, the philosophically elite and socially esteemed because of their wisdom that wasn't the crowd from which you came to Christ. There were not many wise. There were not many powerful, right? Mighty people, probably political power, having positions of influence and control. And then he says, not many noble, probably uh, this is the one we maybe least understand because we don't live in a culture that's sort of got uh, royalty. You know, we don't have lords and knights and all that stuff. Uh, so family name and position isn't as big a deal in our culture, but for loads of cultures of the world, it is. I mean, we still, I mean, some of you like stay up all night to watch the wedding of royals or whatever. I mean, we still have a sort of a fascination of that kind of thing. And and here's what he's saying, the the, the composition of the church at Corinth wasn't from the socially esteemed it wasn't from the politically powerful. It wasn't from the people whose name and family exerted influence over the society. Now, and there's a key here. It's, he doesn't say, not any of you, right? He says, not many 
right? So he's not trying to say God doesn't save people who are held in high esteem in society or politically powerful or have names of reputation, right? But, but it, if you looked at the church at Corinth, that was not the bulk of the group. And in fact, he, he makes a modifier in here to help us understand what he's after. Notice in the middle of verse 26, he says, not many wise according to the flesh. Right, what he's meaning there, the standard that he's adopting actually is a man-centered human way of looking at people. And that's, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a depravity problem that doesn't, necessarily get washed out completely when you come to Christ. Remember James 2? There are people who come into the assembly and, and the person with resources is given the, you know, the front row seat. Actually, probably in our culture, you're given the back row seat or whatever, you know, whatever you're perceived as the best seat, right? They're ushered to the place of honor and the person without is told to just go sit down over there. I mean, James is writing to assemblies of believers who are wanting to categorize people by their economic status as if that signified any kind of real value of the person. That's judging according to the flesh. It's actually using a human standard as to the worth of people rather than what would be a divine or biblical standard that all people who bear the image of Christ have an inherent dignity by virtue of reflecting their maker. And so he's confronting a kind of human, fleshly evaluation of people that is looking at the upper society in Corinth and saying, we really need to reach these people. And if we're going to reach those people, we have to adjust our methods and our message. Right? We have to reach these people. We have got to accommodate what we're doing. And Paul's saying that's the wrong standard for looking at things. That's a flesh, man-centered kind of way. And it's actually, uh, it's, it's really contradictory for them to even think about that. Because the thing that they came to Christ through, right, they were not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. The thing they came to Christ through was the very offensive message that they want to try and set aside so that they can reach up the social ladder. And they're adopting a very flesh-oriented kind of approach. I mean, I've shared this story before, uh, probably just about every time I crisscross this path. When I was uh, when I was in college, I got recruited to go down to Clemson to work in a ministry, and part of the reason I know this is like probably hard to believe at this stage of my life, but I just you know finished playing hockey all the time and was still sort of looked a little more athletic than I do now, um, and so so the goal was for me we we actually started to get an entree into the athletic dorm was to go down and, and work in the Bible study in the athletic dorm. 
And it, it really was explained to me like this, is if we can get some of the big athletes on campus to start coming to the ministry, then we'll be able to draw other people in too. And at that point, Clemson actually, uh, it was actually that season, they won the national championship. And, and so the, the strategy was, think in terms of this, we need to go after the upper echelons the influential people on campus, because if we can get the influential people on campus, then we'll be able to get other people. We'll be able to draw them in, right? And so here, how can we tailor our strategy to get the way we would tend to talk about in our day, the sort of celebrity endorsement for our ministry and for our gospel? Right, and that's been going on for decades. I mean, some well-known person makes some kind of profession of faith and we're gonna run them up front to everybody so that we can sort of get the endorsement of Kanye or whomever, right? Because somehow if people see that Kanye made a profession of faith, then other people will really wanna hear and they might believe too as if Jesus needs any celebrity's help, as if the message of the cross is actually consistent with that kind of celebrity. It's not. And, And that's what Paul's trying to see. Don't you see what God used to bring you to himself is the very thing you're ready to abandon to reach some other group for some other reason? He, he wants them to understand that that's contradictory, not just to the cross, but also to their own, their own uh, merciful reception of what God has done. And the constant quest for human approval and confidence in the power of human influence undercuts the, 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 the priority of the cross in terms of what we're doing. Right and and uh, I mean we we just have to be honest at times, right? When when someone is boldly saying exactly what the scriptures say about the cross of Christ, we sometimes worry about what lost people will think about that, and sometimes hope people would tone it down a little bit because we really want to win them. And we're effectively going, you know what? This medicine is the only thing that will work, but it doesn't taste really good. So let's get rid of all the stuff that makes it taste bad, which is actually what brings healing, and replace it with some great flavorable thing, which is just going to make it into a placebo. They're going to get some form of Christianity, but not the real one because they never come to deal with the fact that there is an issue of sin and the cross was the judgment of God against sin and and it's their sin that they have to humbly acknowledge and acknowledge the righteousness of Christ in the cross. We can effectively water it down to make it more palatable and we lose the power of the gospel because we want people to think better of us or we think we can do it better than God said. And we need to recognize that danger surfaced 
early in the history of the church and has never gone away. It may throw on different clothes from generation to generation, but it's the same problem. We want to be liked. And we sometimes adopt a strategy that says, if we can get them to like us, then we can get them to like Jesus. Right? And sometimes people actually will say, we've got to win them to ourselves before we can win them to Jesus. In other words, let's eliminate the offensive elements of the Christian gospel until we get them socially plugged in and then we can make the gospel, here's words that are used, we can make the gospel more plausible. We can make it more acceptable to them. And we are undercutting the power of the message. So he highlights first that, that their social composition as a church provides no ground for boasting. But look at in verses 27 and 28, he turns to actually the activity of God and, and does so in terms that emphasize God's sovereign choice in the matter of salvation. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, that he may nullify the things that are. So you see in this choice by God, the instrument that he chooses to use this, right, is the things that are tied to his choosing. Notice the first, back up in verse 26, consider your calling. So the choosing in verse 27 is the outworking of their calling, which we saw back in, in uh, the message last week, like verse 24. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So what Paul is doing is he's tying together this concept that it's God's work that brings a person to salvation. The gospel preached will be to the Jew a stumbling block and to the Greek foolishness, but to those who are the called, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's what he says in verse 24, then verse 26. So consider your calling. What's the calling? When you were called, right? If you're among the called, you had a calling. And then he takes the next step and says, God has chosen these things. And those things parallel the list in verse 26, right? Wise, mighty, noble, in contrast to the foolish that shames the wise, the weak that shames the strong, the base that and despise that shames the noble and those types of contrasts that are happening here. So God deliberately takes the path of choosing those who do not have any basis to claim salvation. He is, it, it, is the, it is ultimately the work of God to draw them to himself. It's not according to the flesh or of the world, those standards that are there. So, um, you know, the, the point would be God's, God graciously, remember the, I said the word, uh, the letter M, 
right? So God does sometimes save celebrities, but God's path isn't to save celebrities so that other people will be saved, right? And that's where we get it wrong. It's like, okay, if we can get this big name person to trust Christ, then we'll really see this thing go forward. Or if we can, if we can, you know, reach this influential group of people, then we'll really see the work of God accelerated. And actually God says, no, I'm going to take the weak things. I'm going to take the things perceived as foolish. I'm going to take the things which are despised. Right? He actually is operating on a different standard and intentionally doing so, so that there is not a predictability of success based on human reasoning and strategizing. Nobody is more savable than the other person. You recognize that, right? He's not saying here, well, God can only save the foolish, weak, and despised because the others, they're too hard to save. No, nobody is more or less savable because all are dead in trespasses and sins. What God is doing is taking low things and exalting them for a specific purpose and reason. And you can see that in the text as to why he's doing this, the intent of it. Notice it is, verse 27, to shame the wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. He, he's chosen the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. So God's intent in this choice he has made is to shame and nullify the, uh, the, the, the side of the equation that man exalts, right? Man takes pride in wisdom, takes pride in strength, takes pride in nobility, and God's going to shame and nullify it. Now, shame here, we tend to think of as like embarrassment, right? So God's, God's publicly embarrassing or emotionally humiliating them. Uh, it really is probably the way when you see nullify, you get the idea, right? He's going to defeat these things. He is not going to let them stand in his presence. That's why when you find, for instance, in Romans 10, where it says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, will never be put to shame, right? It's, it's actually an issue of whether or not the confidence you've placed in this thing is actually worth or not, right? If you have placed your confidence in something that's unworthy of it, you will be disappointed in it. That is put to shame. But if you have placed your confidence in something which will never disappoint you, you will never be put to shame. So what God is doing is you, according to the flesh and of the world, are putting all of your confidence in your perceived wisdom, in your perceived power, in your perceived status. And as long as you trust in those things, then the way of God is actually going to put you to shame because you are trusting in things that are unworthy of that trust. 
They will not, in fact, stand up in the great day. He's going to take the things which are not viewed as important in this world to nullify the things that are viewed as important in this world. At no point will anyone stand before God and say, look at my accomplishments. I was in the who's who of whatever. I achieved all of these things. I was viewed as an influential, powerful person. I had a name that was recognized. God God will look at that, and I think I can say this based on Psalm 2. He will scoff. He will laugh at that because it says he laughs at the nations who raise their hand up against him. God is completely unimpressed by what we as humans consider impressive. It will be put to shame. It will be nullified. You can have the greatest name recognized in all the world, and it will amount to nothing at the judgment of Christ. Because your name cannot save you. My name cannot save me. There's only one name that can save, and it's the name of Christ. In him alone is salvation found. And so the difference here between people is the intent and purpose of God. It's not actually the object of salvation. God is not going, okay, I'm only going to save poor people. I'm only going to save despised people. No, it's trying to show us that the intent of God is so that no one will be able to boast before him. Right? And that was even true with Israel. You remember in, in Deuteronomy, uh, God is reminding Israel of why he chose them. <laughs> was it because you were greater than all the nations or more mighty or more numerous? And the answer was no. It was because I loved you. Right? It was rooted in him that salvation came. And the same thing is true here. It's not that God looks at us and goes, man, I sure am glad I saved you. You're really special. The outpouring of salvation is not to make us feel like we're special. It's to cause us to recognize how great he is and how gracious he is. So that leads to verse 29, so that no one may boast before God. If we were saved based on our performance or our status or our influence, then we would have some reason to boast before God. But God's purpose in salvation is such that we have no ground to boast. And that's rooted in the fact that salvation comes from God to us. right? And and we have to constantly be brought to recognize that. The thing that distinguishes, if you know Christ this morning, the thing that distinguishes you from someone who doesn't know Christ is not you. It's not that you are smarter. It's not that you are closer to God. Not that you are more valuable than some other person. It is not you which makes the difference. It is God. Who makes the difference. And at no point will you be able to stand on the streets of gold and do the, the, the Pharisee thing. 
As you look over the, you know, the battlements of heaven and see people under God's judgment, you won't stand there and go, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other people, like them. But I did, or I knew, or I was. Absolutely not. We'll stand and say, thank you, Jesus, for rescuing me. Because I was not, I was not commendable in myself. I was not more savable than anybody else. I was no closer to you than anybody else. But you made me an object of your mercy. And I have nothing to boast in, in myself. Then look at verses 30 and 31. He turns it to the fact that we should boast only in the Lord. And again, he starts with sovereign action. Notice the first part of verse 30. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. So again, Paul, you can't miss what Paul's doing here because the, the, the mindset that he's confronting at Corinth was, we're not going to reach people if we don't modify this message, which means we have to make the message more acceptable on the terms of the lost person. And that puts the lost person in the driver's seat. Right? I mean, the customer is king when you start to play that. If I'm going to get the person to buy my product, then I actually have to get them to see that this product is worthwhile, that, that it's for them. And I have to couch everything in terms of ways that it will satisfy their needs so that I can move them. I can incentivize them to come to close the deal with Jesus. And, and, and honestly, if you look at a lot of, a lot of modern gospel presentations and written gospel communication it it's it it's tailored to a kind of an approach that is a motivated sequence that starts with the felt needs of the audience because it wants to try and capture the interest and uh self motivated appeal and and because it ultimately does sort of do the thing that's like you know okay here's the issue there's a great great you know there's a great choice that has to be made god has voted the devil's voted you get to cast the deciding vote <laughs> right it's in your hands it's your power you're the definitive piece in this if you're going to be saved, it hangs on your action. You have the decisive choice here. And look at the first part of verse 30. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. And that's just another way of saying God has chosen your calling the called. It is the work of God that brings salvation to the heart of a sinner. The source and cause of their salvation is God's work, not their own. All that they have come through 
right? All, all that has come to them has come through their connection to Christ. Notice, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. So God has placed you into relationship with Christ Jesus. He's connected you to Christ and it's not from them, right? It is that God has done these things for them. That's why they're described, uh, for instance, as being set apart in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, because they've called on the name of the Lord. They have believed the message of what God will do for them through Christ, and they've received it. So why should they boast only in the Lord? Well, it's because God has done for them what needs to be done to be saved. They didn't do it. They didn't save themselves. They didn't they didn't arrive at some kind of sophisticated conclusion that brought them to a, a level of enlightenment so that now they were in this category. It was actually God. God chose them. God called them. God did this in them in relationship to Christ. And look what he did. In verse 30, he describes it. It's wrapped up in Christ. You are his doing in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. So that I think what he's saying there is tied to what he says in verse 24, right? Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God, verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, the weakness of God is stronger than men. So, so here's what happened is God, if I can try and show it this way, right? The sinner is opposed to the gospel. Remember, I was just showing you from this angle, but do it from this angle. I'm a Jewish person, I hear about Christ crucified and I go, that's a stumbling block. Or I'm a Greek person, I hear about Christ crucified and I go, that's moronic. But to the called, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So, so what happened, right? What happened to distinguish the two? It is by his doing in Christ, that you have seen him, Christ, become the wisdom from God. How did you start to see the cross of Christ as being God's wisdom rather than moronic? How did you start to see the cross of Christ as being the power of God rather than being a stumbling block? By his doing in Christ, Christ has become the wisdom from God. It's God who opens the eyes to that. It's God who, who works to cause us to see his glory in the face of Christ. It's the spirit who convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. All of that is coming from the Godward side to secure the response of faith. It's not from the manward side. It's not by the human process of coming to a conclusion like you would on which car you want to buy or which home you want to have or where you want to 
where you want to go on vacation. I just sort of look at the information, consider the pros and cons, and I make the best, smartest decision. You don't, you weren't hearing the cross of Christ preach to you and going, well, let me size this up and see if I think it makes sense. Oh yeah, I think it makes sense to me. I mean, it's a, it makes sense. I'll, I'll accept that. Because in chapter two, he says, the natural man does not receive the things of God, neither can he know them for their foolishness to him. While you are left in your natural state, your consistent interpretation of the cross of Christ is going to be, that's foolish. I do not accept that. That is not, nothing is going to change left in your natural state. It's going to require the work of God to change your heart. And we see that multiple times in the scripture. One of the clearest is Lydia when Paul preaches. It says, and God opened up her heart to receive the things that Paul was saying. Her heart was naturally closed and God opened her heart to receive it. That's what he's talking about. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us. And and here Paul is is probably graciously making certain that they don't think he's just talking down to them, right? What were you, (laughs) right? You weren't many wise. You weren't many mighty. You weren't many noble. He was going, you, you, you. Now he's going, us, right? Christ became to us the wisdom of God by virtue of God's activity. And then he unpacks that a little bit. Wisdom righteous, wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption are all, in a sense, uh, further elaborations of what that wisdom is for us, that, that we have righteousness from God. We have sanctification and redemption. I think, I don't want to overplay it, but I think there may be some connection between the things that he's saying here. If you think, if you think about the things that he had said, wise and mighty and noble, right? Social esteem, political power and influence despised or or uh, in a noble status, right? He's, he put those against each other. And here, here we come along and here's what God does for us. He makes us accepted in Christ by virtue of his righteousness. He, he actually sets us apart for himself. That's sanctification. He actually purchases us out of our slavery and makes us his own. We were slaves, despised, debased, but, but he rescued us through the redemption of Christ. He made us his family, his people. He accepts us in Christ. So what would be the only conclusion of that? Verse 31. So just as it is written, quoting from Jeremiah, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Right? It should be, you know, it should be, let me tell you about what God has done for my soul. Not, let me tell you about me. Right? Not, not uh, staking out our claim to spiritual position. Not staking out our claim for human approval. But always going, let me, let me tell you about what the Lord has done. 
Let him who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. And we need to realize that because spiritual pride is an ugly and sinister thing. Right? It, 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 if it were recognizable, probably most people wouldn't display it. I mean, you know, the, the hardest person to try and convince they're proud is a proud person. Because the very pride blinds them to it. They don't see it. They just, well, I'm just telling you what God's, you know, what God's been so gracious to me about. And then God sort of drifts to the backseat and it's all about, here's what I did. Here's what I am. Here's where I've got. And, and sometimes it can show up like that Pharisee toward the tax collector in the way we look down at other people. Right? We think that we have some spiritual standing that's unique to us. Instead of saying like, Paul, I am what I am by the grace of God. We, 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 can, we can look down at others because we've ascended to some place that we think is above them. And, and, and our boasting at that point is in ourself and our achievements. It's not in the Lord. And sometimes in our culture, I mean, I, I hopefully this won't, like, I don't even know how many of you have listened to Patch the Pirate lately. Probably not a lot of you. But there was a song that, you know, it's a cute little ditty. I'm not going to sing it for you. But it goes something like, you know, I'm special to Jesus. There's no one else like me. Right? And it goes through the whole song about, I'm special, you see. Right? And, and what it's doing is taking the work of God and making it about me. Right? I'm special. There's no one else like me. I wouldn't trade places with anyone else. I'm special, you see. I mean, that's, that's not... That's not a biblical frame of reference. That's a psychological frame of reference that says healthy living has a healthy self-esteem. And here's the way you get your healthy self-esteem. You get it because you're special to Jesus. Right? You're now, you're now actually pumping up the esteem of a person as a reflex to God's grace rather than actually causing them to see that it's God's grace that we're to marvel at, right? I should, be, I should be on my knees going, look at how God is so gracious. Who am I that he would do this for me? Right, that's the consistent message in scripture. Who am I that God would do this? There's not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. Who, who are we that God did this for us? Not, we're special to Jesus. There's no one else like me. Right? Or, boy, you must be important because God doesn't make junk. Or, boy, you must be important. Jesus died for you. You should feel better about yourself. You should have a, a good view of yourself because of how special you are to God instead of how amazing God is and what God has done for us and the fact that we 
did not deserve the love that he displayed. And so our boasting shouldn't be about us. It should be about him. It's a, it's a fundamentally different perspective on the way we would handle it. Right? And we need, to, we need to realize and come to grips with the tendency for us to think that the key to reaching the world for Christ is to meet the world on the world's terms. We, we, have, to, we have to accommodate the rebellion of unbelief if we're going to reach them. And, and uh, there's, a, there's dozens of ways in which that's happening. Rewriting, reinterpreting, recasting, re-envisioning what human life is, what human flourishing is, what the origins of human life are, what the moral ethic of human life are, right? Because, because as, as the culture around us has drifted farther and farther away from its theistic foundation, I'm not saying truly Christian, but founded inside of a worldview that presupposed theism and that we answered to some God somewhere, as we've abandoned that, we, we actually have gotten farther and farther so that things that God says in his word now not only sound old, but are being accused of being immoral or accused of being old myths that no, I mean, truly nobody believes that God actually spoke the world into existence, do they? I mean, come on, you're not a creationist, are you? You don't really think that people will spend eternity under God's judgment, do you? I mean, you don't really believe that. And so what's happening is people want to go, okay, okay, let's let's sort of push all that stuff away. Let's find the things that would be most attractive to the modern appetite and see if we can put that bait on the hook. Right? You, you want to have a better self-esteem? Hey, I, I can show you how you can really be, find your identity and have a healthy self-esteem. Here, come, come, come. You want to have a good marriage? You want to be able to have a healthy family? You want to be prosperous in this world? Right? Let's find some different bait for the hook because the fish aren't nibbling on the bait we currently have. And instead of thinking that perhaps it's because we're not actually depending on God and seeking his face like we're supposed to seek his face for the spirit to give us boldness to trust him and for the spirit to open the eyes of the blind we keep opting for what we perceive to be better alternatives. And the net result is, is that American Christianity is becoming less Christian, not being more effective. 
right? When Joel Olstein can fill a former basketball stadium with people who want to come and hear how to be healthy and wealthy, and evangelicals are sort of moving toward the prosperity gospel people rather than calling them out, then, then the reality of it is the, the drift is moving away from fidelity, not toward it. You and I need to be ready to take a stand with the cross of Christ because our boasting is in the Lord. Right? He said this. He did this for us, and we trust him. We need to come back to a song that we sing regularly that reminds us of the cross, right? Which repeats for us many times in the chorus, abhorring all my sin, adoring only him. Right? If I see what the cross really communicates, it will actually humble me before God, because it shows I have no ground for boasting and that I actually can boast only in the Lord, which is exactly Paul's point in this passage. Let's pray. Father, please help us to to do battle in our minds with the tendency to trust our own thinking more than your revelation. the battle in our heart to want to be accepted, to want to be liked, to want to please people, and and the tendency that can have to cause us to be embarrassed about things that people don't like, to be embarrassed about truths which are inconvenient in a world that's rejected you to keep trying to accommodate to the opinions and judgments of people who don't love our Savior. Help us to have deeply in our heart a reminder of where you saved us and what you drew us out of and what you've provided for us in Christ that this was your work, not ours, and that it was through the cross, the message proclaimed of a crucified Messiah, that your power was displayed. Your wisdom shined through in brilliant light. So, Lord, help us never to turn away from it. Help us to be humbled, so that we don't boast in ourselves, but captured by your love for us so that we boast with great fervency in the Lord, the one who redeemed us. And I pray even this morning that you might uh, reaffirm that truth in our hearts if we know Christ and that you might open the eyes of those who don't know him who still have been thinking they have something that will commend them to you. Some work that they think will satisfy you. Some religious performance that will earn their their standing and your favor. Help them to see that no one 
has ground to boast before you. But there is salvation in Christ, and so we can boast in him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.